And all of these kids were asking for his autograph because they knew he was my father. And it was the first time that it had reversed and he was doing autographs for being the hero defending Hole with these weird fans over there. My father was the coolest. That was on MTV News and Courtney sent him five dozen white roses like that week and the letter, which I hope I have in my archives, to the father I never had. Thank you for defending my honor, Nick. I'm Matthew Philp. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. And I'm Erin Hosier. And this is Tell Me About Your Father, a podcast about daddy issues, father figures, and dismantling the paternal mystique. We examine how fathers, both literal and symbolic, influence pop culture, politics, and the lives of people of every generation from all over the world. So settle in and listen as we delve into some dad stuff. I'm Erin Hosier. I'm Elizabeth Thompson. Man, this was a fun one. Mm-hmm. We are whole fans. The band whole, you know, particularly of the album Live Through This, right? That hit our lives in the early 90s, 94. Mm-hmm. Courtney Love is in that band. Patty Schemmel is the drummer. Melissa was the bass player. And Eric Erlinson was the uh, other guitarist and founder of Hole. And today we're so excited to talk to Melissa Oftemauer, that bass player. And wow, does she have a story about her larger than life father, Nick? Yep. I mean, did I mean, you know? No, I had no going idea. Going in. So Melissa Oftemauer is the daughter of Nick. Oftimoir, who was a very prominent and influential journalist in Montreal. He was super involved in covering social movements and things in Montreal. But as she, Melissa says in this interview, he touched all facets of media. He was not only a journalist, but he also was on TV and radio. So he was sort of this local legend in Montreal, down to the point where there is a street named after him. He was the quintessential hard-drinking, chain-smoking, larger-than-life, come over here, let me buy you a drink and spin you a yarn, old-school journalist, media man. Charming as can be. And you got connected to Melissa in your writing with Patty Schemmel, who's also on this podcast and said, oh my God, you have to come on, tell me about your father to talk about this crazy dad of yours. You know, that record, Live Through This, hit you and me even 10 years apart as like the album to like be pissed off to. And particularly when it came to like our parents, right? It was really powerful to talk to, to Melissa because of what you just said, you know, we have a 10-year age gap between us. Not really, but almost. Yeah. And so my big sister turned me on to whole and lived through this was like my gateway drug. It was like, holy shit. You know, Nirvana a little bit, but whole much more. The lyrics were weird and Mm -hmm. mysterious. And she had a feud with Kathleen Hanna and she was critical of the Olympia Riot girls. And Courtney was like this muscular guitar goddess. Yes. And she was a badass. And then you had Melissa, who was like, and I hate to talk about how she looks, but she is a beautiful redheaded and natural. And so, yeah, Patty's been on Tell Me About Your Father. So for us to be able to again talk to someone 
who just was in my ear at the time of really being so mad at my dad, so angry with him and kind of watching my family fall apart and you talking about your, you know, it was the, the, the anthem of like our families falling apart, the soundtrack. Right. Um, And so to be able to talk to her was so important. And in this telling us about her father, she paints a picture of an amazing guy who even, we want to for listeners, but even did something incredible. And physical and masculine and uh, paternal for the band whole. Let's just say defending Courtney's honor in a specific paternal way that is exciting to hear about. Mm -hmm. And this is the 25th anniversary of Melissa's dad's death. So she will explain that she has been so emotional and has been, we didn't realize that he had died in April or we hadn't put that together. But when we were doing this interview, You know, she's like, I've cried more over my father's death in the 25th year than I ever was able to. Totally. And that's fascinating. And yeah, just a fun fact, like her dad died of a heart attack when he was 54 and she was 26. And that was my experience, too. Oh, my. You're exact. You were 26 and your dad was 54. Yeah. Wow. and with the alcoholism and the fact that he was a journalist, just like Clay, you know, there's little, yeah. a little symmetry. And so that's probably all we have to say. <laughs> Listen to this episode and then stay for the end when there's an, a kick-ass <laughs> story about making out with her father's gravedigger and then writing a song about it with, well, she wrote it and then Danzig good old Glenn. Oh my God. Anyway, stick around to the end. I mean, what is she, I mean, as Melissa says in this interview, even though she was in Hole, even though she was in Smashing Pumpkins, she's a metal musician. And Aaron and I were like, what's up with this Danzig song that you have about my father's grave? And she tells us a stunningly amazing story about a cool black guy. And that's all we're going to tell you. Yeah. Okay. It's hot. Thank you, Melissa, for coming on. And here's Melissa Optumar. Here we are, Melissa <laughs> Optumar. Whoa, Busy and I are the biggest Hole fans ever. Oh. I'm older than Busy, so I saw you guys, your very first tour, some of your first shows in Akron, Ohio, I guess, in 1994, in Cleveland, Ohio, and read all of the, you know, the Rolling Stone, the Spin, the Mojo, the Q, the Face. Everybody had like their big whole profiles. And one of the narratives was Melissa Oftemauer's father is oh, somebody. That somehow got through that? that? That got through. Wow. For Courtney, it was Kurt, you know, the, mm-hmm. the rock husband. For Patty, I guess it was coming out of the closet. Mm-hmm. And Eric, you know, tall, dating Drew Barrymore, the quiet one, and you, daughter of Nick. Mm -hmm. So cool that you know that. Yeah, I mean, I know that. (laughs) But that's interesting (laughs) that you from an outside place knew that. Yeah. 
Well, it was always a question mark. And Busy and I were just talking about hearing that when he died in 1998 on MTV, that your dad died. And what a special thing. I know. It makes me want to cry. This is a very, the timing of this podcast is insane. You understand that we're the, yeah. the 25 year anniversary. And last week, I just reenacted a memorial for him 25 years, uh, which was at the time, the biggest funeral in Montreal history at the time. And really? Beautiful. And we just had uh, last Good Friday, because he died on Good Friday, uh, was buried Easter Monday. And this, the 25-year anniversary, was exactly the same Friday, Monday, Easter weekend all over again. And um, so we had a Nick Good Friday happy hour in his honor at the place where we had his original after party for the funeral, the big funeral bash party that he had curated from his deathbed. So he had like arranged the whole party. And so I just executed it. But I, um, yeah, like last Friday, good Friday, I woke up uh, in the morning and told my husband and daughter, I'm like, this was the hardest, saddest day of my life, 25 years. And I just cried as if I never felt Mm. it before. Like I'm feeling it for the first time. I think for, you know, grief is such a wild beast and uh, everyone that experiences like a dramatic or especially too early in life or like an accidental, horrible death, but such a quagmire of pain, confusion, no, no clue what you're going to feel from one day to the next. And I think that I largely put it uh on shelves for years and there's something about this milestone of the quarter century anniversary but also being a mother of an 11 year old which was really kind of probably the prime age that when I realized how amazing my father was and I realized how non-traditional wackadoodle not unlike Courtney just like a wild person out there (laughs) to just try to change and shift culture in the place that he lived and um yeah this is like I have cried more in the last week or two than I have in 25 years over my father. So that's a, for anyone who's, you know, experienced loss. I mean, I don't even think I cried in the first year that he was gone. It was so out of body. Um, but I am, it's such a good time to talk about it because I'm feeling it more than ever. I'm writing my memoir and he's very central. And then the oddity about my father and Kurt died two days apart from each other. So in the last two weeks, Courtney and I have been very in touch, which we always were spiritually. But the thing about Kurt, you know, when the man, when that, what, whatever that significant man who sort of defines you dies and you're sharing like this confusion of grief and the idea of shadows and what are these men who define women? Um, yeah. And of course, like a life, you know, how, how many, how many generations and thousands of years of women trying to hold their own, let alone, I actually like you to explain a bit about the mission behind this podcast and like mm-hmm. talking to people about their father and tell me, tell me more. Well, it started because I wrote this memoir that I really labored over for a good 10 years about my father or just losing him okay. and how losing him like defined my life when I was 26. And then um, the next, the next 20 years plus of being alive, like what, the absence of him has meant. And in my case, it was just like 
relationships that seemed very similar to the dynamic that I shared with him, which was so fraught with like obsessive love and, oh, you taught me everything I know about music. And didn't I teach you everything you know about, you know, blah, blah, blah. But then also like, you know, the, the dark side of that and the anger that can come in, in grief. And just in talking to people about my relationship with my father, I realized that people love to talk about it. They love to talk about their own relationships, their own origin stories, and they're just not given the opportunity. So we ask and people kind of never say no. Right. <laughs> it's yeah. really interesting. Right. Yeah. I met Aaron a few years ago and, the, and we bonded because I had a very complicated relationship with my dad who also five years tomorrow will have died. Tomorrow's his anniversary. And it's reassuring to hear you say you put it on a shelf in the early years because it's so hard for me to process still. But Erin, you know, made this really astute observation that in years of thinking about her dad's death, writing that memoir, that when she would ask people about their dads, they would often respond by telling her about their mother's. You know, they would start talking about their fathers, but then it would would weave into mothers. And so we wanted to start this show to just explore why why are dads such a question mark? You know, they have such huge influence on our lives. And as you mentioned, these sort of shadow men that end up overshadowing the lives of women. And and why is that and why are they so mysterious? Let's just start with Courtney, this this question, because we're going to get into the music and how your dad influenced you. And he is such a larger than life person and a public person. But is it true that Courtney's dad, Hank, was talking shit about Kurt on a stage? It was it in Montreal. And your dad, Nick, they came to blows. What the yep. fuck? No, it's even cooler. That was on MTV <laughs> News, too, actually. Yeah. So somewhere you can find that MTV News story. It is even cooler than that. It is that Courtney's father was talking shit about Courtney, oh. not about Kurt. He was wow. on that Who Killed Kurt conspiracy tour with the writer. So, so the documentary came out and these creepy journalists wrote a book based on the documentary that is this conspiracy that Courtney killed Kurt. Right. And we were, I remember very well, we were on tour in Europe or in the U.S. or something, and we had heard that Hank was joining the tour of these quack journalists to do book signings of this crazy book. Mm -hmm. And and that most of the places, because there was, I think, Courtney's lawyers or somebody, or venues were saying, actually, we don't want to take liability. So most of the venues had canceled the book tour signing. Yeah. But Montreal somehow didn't get the memo and just was having an event. When my father died in 1998, there a beautiful book called A Montreal Life, a dedication to Nick Oftermar. came out. And there's a tribute by a fellow journalist, Juan Rodriguez, because we had tributes and samples of his writing. And his friend who went with him to the event describes the whole story. So I have it. Wow. I have it written by a journalist of what happened is that they were at a bar. And Nick says, can you believe, you know, Courtney's father is in town, support. They read about it in the paper. Like, what is happening? I wasn't even in town. I didn't tell him that. He saw the event was happening. Wow. And he had a couple of drinks with his friend Juan and said, we're going down there and we're going to stop this. And so he <laughs> went to the venue with his friend in his like linen suit and fedora hat. And, and as they took the stage, 
my father, and there's a photo captured by the local press, so it's in the book, of him being pulled off stage. He marches up on the stage and grabs the mic. And I love this Freudian slip. Talk about like, you know, the mother, father, yang, yang of shadow. <laughs> he grabs a mic and said, there are no mothers. I mean, fathers on this stage. What father would do? And so she he was defending Courtney's honor of like, this yes. can't be a father. Who would come up and support a theory that his daughter killed her husband? And then he got pulled off the stage and he wrote an article about it. But then also there's the recount of his journalist friend who captured it, that he's pulled off stage. And he said it was the first time he was outside the venue and all of these kids were asking for his autograph because they knew he was my father. And it was the first time that it had reversed and he was doing autographs for his for being the hero defending whole with these weird fans over there. My father was the coolest. That was on MTV News and Courtney sent him five dozen white roses um, like that week and the letter, which I hope I have in my archives, but I haven't found it. To the father I never had, thank you for defending my honor, Nick. Oh. And they always had a beautiful bond. And um, recently when uh, I found myself quickly able to cry about the loss of my father because it's been so long, I was doing a, a live radio show with one of his old colleagues because my father started in radio and TV and, the, and journalism, all three, all, all, all layers of broadcasting and journalism, and then eventually got into politics based on what a man on the street journalist discovered about humans. He was a humanist. He was a humanitarian. His whole, whole thing was fight for the underdog, tell the government they can't get away with taking advantage of humans. That was like his number one MO, which obviously is, you know, very, it resonates with the, our ethos of the early 90s of just anti-corporate, independent, you know, our own world, our own scene. We have control, yeah. not them. Me going back to some of his old broadcasting pals, I thought I was just going to do like a live afternoon, like, hey, come to the memorial on Friday. Good, you know, happy hour for my father. And, you know, when they do the intro, so I'm sitting on live radio waiting to be called on to live radio. And this broadcaster was actually like Montreal's biggest sportscaster, but he was doing a segment on my father, who is a big hockey fan, but he was doing a Melissa's on the show. He starts it with this like very surprising. It's an audio and you hear a voice say, Ladies and gentlemen, whole. And then a live recording of Violet starts. Yeah. And I'm like listening to it. And all of a sudden I'm like brought, it's like cinematic. I'm brought into the moment. I'm like, hey, wait, what show is that? And how is he? And then I realized, oh, that was when we played Saturday Night Live. That was George Foreman introducing us. Wow, why is he playing this? And then it goes to the broadcaster and he says, that was an excerpt of Whole on Saturday Night Live. In December of 1994, I was Nick Offenbauer's neighbor, and I was downstairs, and I heard that there was a party going on, a viewing party. He paints this picture of my father having all of his friends over to watch us on Saturday Night Live and Aww. the pride and joy and being brought into that room in December 1994 with my, like, larger-than-life father and all of his friends and this sportscaster remembering it. By the time he introduced me, I was bawling my eyes out. Welcome back. Melnick in the afternoon on TSN 690. Mitch Melnick with Andy Bennett and John Still. More on the Habs and Red Wings coming up later. So let me tell you a little story. Uh, this is uh, right around Christmas in 1994, and I'm living at 2136 Tupper Street downtown. Uh, the owner of uh, the top two floors in the building was Nick Oftermar. And there's a viewing party going up upstairs. And uh, I was a little late, but fortunately I didn't miss it. 
I grabbed my camcorder. Remember those camcorders, Ooh. those Sony camcorders <laughs> when you had kids in the 90s? You realize you spend hours and hours and hours of shooting your kids just sitting there doing absolutely nothing. <laughs> so I was going to put it to use. I ran upstairs just in time to hear that introduction. And while everybody was watching Hole on Saturday Night Live, uh, Nick was transfixed, not by Courtney Love, but by the uh, bass player with the incredible red hair to Courtney's right, who was his daughter. And I have it all on film somewhere. (laughs) I wish I could find it in time for Good Friday because Melissa Oftermar and Bugs Burnett and uh, the old gang getting back together again to honor Nick on the 25th anniversary of his passing on of course it's Good Friday. Welcome to the show, Melissa Oftermar. How are you doing? <laughs> well, you literally just made me cry. <laughs> oh, 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 man. Yeah. I'm going to do my best, Melissa. It's been in storage. Oh. You know, these uh, the camcorder, little little tapes in the camcorder? I was... know. I remember. I have them in my own archive. <laughs> yeah, wow. He was so proud. He was so proud that moment. This is actually my first cry of the season. I always get sad this week. <laughs> and I... And... Yeah. I was like, did not expect this. And I would do just like a little local, like, yeah. live radio show about my father today. And I would be crying. And it went so beautifully deep. And these, like, local radio people asked me these questions about my father. And they started, they ended the interview where you just started, which is what is the connection between your father and Courtney? Do you think your father, which the city of Montreal knows to have been this legendary radical, push the buttons, ready to argue and make everybody question what is right and wrong and do it in a very loud, entertaining way. At the end of the interview, they said, do you think that your father is why you were able to understand and have so much compassion and stand by Courtney Love all these years? Because the radio co-host, the female co-host said, I just want you to know the whole changed my life. It was everything Mm -hmm. I needed as a teenager. But what I've noticed the most about you is how you've defended her honor and you have always said that she was missed handled misrepresented and do you think it's because of your father that you understand court and i guess i've always known that and that just the bond between courtney and my father was so apparent and they were so cut of the same cloth but having this like once teenager now montreal radio person asking me that question i realized mm. yes a hundred per- i mean i've always known that my training of being Nick's daughter is why I was able, capable, equipped to be Courtney's bass player. I know that. Yeah. And live, growing up in the public life, doesn't matter per capita if you're in front of like a city or a globe. If you grow up in front of the public and you are on live TV and on the cover of newspapers like I was, my relationship to my father was a public relationship. Mm. Mine and Courtney's relationship is a public relationship. And it doesn't change the power of the intimacy, but it does put it in a weird stage where in some cases you don't feel like it's yours or it's not real Mm -hmm. and that it's not an intimate thing between you and that person. It's like becomes this like shared thing. And so the combination of people's, their own outside interpretations, like the city of Montreal romanticizes those who are still alive and watch me grow up in the public eye remembers this father and daughter team and what they like people lived by comparison through us of like wow look at this weird guy and there was a single mother and this like weird non-traditional father guy like is so loyal to his daughter it was just you know and same goes with anyone who was in whole or you know weird weird band to be in crazy things to be committed to and 
anyway, so there's a lot going on between the two. And and then it is just odd that Kurt and my father are somehow yeah. similar to the role of Courtney and I of this question of these men who defined us. Yeah. And that it happens so quickly, you know, like you just met them in 1994, mm-hmm. right? After Kristen Pfaff died. Oh, my God. Um, The original so bass player. And you were a self-preservationist even then. Like, yeah. how old were you? You were in 22. your 20s. 22? I was still, I was, and my original uh, response to Billy Corgan saying I was going to join, I was going to, Kristen had died like, two weeks earlier when I got yeah. the call of like, you're going to join my friend Courtney's band. And I said, absolutely not. I'm not going to step into Kurt just died. It's like the biggest news story of suicide I'd yeah. ever heard of mixed with the overdose of, of poor Kristen. My answer was no, but it was also, I'm finishing my, my bachelor's of fine arts. I don't need to be in a rock band. I have like a great life. So the self-preservationist was always there too. Of like, I like my life. I don't right. need whole to make my life good. My life is cool. And that is the legend of why Courtney then decided I was the bass player. And that was it. Was yeah. it? I, I said no. And she <laughs> said, that's the girl I want. She was, I guess, pretty smart. I didn't meet oh. her. <laughs> Melissa, I'm curious just to back up a little bit. You know, you mentioned like that Nick was this radical journalist and this figure and that you also were in a public kind of relationship with him. And, you know, my my father was not as big a name as your dad was, but he was a local journalist in Phoenix who, Phoenix, Arizona, who five years later, they're still running his column. He had a daily column and they still run the column. Mm -hmm. And it's really weird. (laughs) I mean, I feel like the city of Phoenix is still mourning my dad Mm. as well. But my dad wrote about me, too, and incorporated me into his writing. It was a little different, though, because he was an alcoholic and his life was falling apart kind of around him, as was our relationship. Similar. That's not different. (laughs) He He would use the column to sort of, and I have a sister who's um, four years older than me, who also, I mean, she changed my life by turning me on to whole. And famously in the 1994 tour, Courtney threw a cup out into the audience and she got a little scrap of a plastic cup that had just a little, little smudge of lipstick on it. Oh, yeah. Her bulletin board. And then her boyfriend at the time had a scrap of Kurt's flannel from when uh-huh. she jumped into the crowd at the Phoenix uh, Fair, the Arizona State Fair, you know, audience. So I digress. Like, Cole mm-hmm. is also a huge part of our childhood. Mm-hmm. But set against that childhood was my dad's life falling apart. We really wow. turned to the music because it was the only thing that made sense for that inner rage yep, for girls at that time. However, my dad used his writing to tell a very different story of the dad with the daughters and the funny, the funny homespun, you know, scenarios of discovering my sister had gotten a tattoo or. Well, that's exactly what my, my father's default was. I was the default position. He would talk about the drug dealers, the nuns, the like story <laughs> of Montreal. But I was the go to. I was the heart of the story. And it was. That too. It was she's studying Buddhism at school. Wow, my daughter's all of a sudden religious. Or I, yeah. the bass. I mean, he wrote all about that. So I grew up just like that too, with what he got me for my birthday, the trip, to, you know, the summer trip, 
going to a barbecue. He hates outdoors. That's uh, yes. That's very similar. <laughs> you mentioned 11. So at 11, you're like, oh, wait a minute. My dad's amazing. Or starting to at least appreciate his work. Tell us about his yeah. career coming into that realization yeah. at 11. And then maybe the sort of the, the later years of like, I'm not loving being written about necessarily. Mm-hmm. Well, I always loved being written about, but my mother yeah. hated it. My mother mm-hmm. was a single mother. She selected accidentally, beautifully, perfectly my father to be like the bachelor that she would have a baby with and then later told him I existed. So I have this, you know, a strange origin story with that. But my mother um, was the one who had a major issue with it. They got married when I was five for a year, but uh, it was when they divorced that um, I became like, he became the fun weekend fun father. Mm-hmm. And when we started really building our relationship, I didn't meet him until I was three. And then they got married when I was five. It was over within the year. And then he had spent the year, the rest of his life trying to basically make up for the failed marriage and his eternal love of my mother through being a cool father to me. And that's how our relationship was started. So I never called him dad. I only met him when I was three. Nick was his name. And um, he, I guess, started talking about me at five, six, you know, he didn't even know I existed when I was born. So I entered somewhere in my five, six-year-old. And then so by 11, we had established a great relationship. You know, I spent weekends with him. He'd pick me up Fridays at school. I always had a friend with me, usually my friend Alice. And it was always the same routine. Montreal was his stage. Montreal was his muse. He was very well known. He had had TV and radio shows throughout the late late 60s, early 70s. He had won his first political campaign in 74. So, but, and I'm born in 72. So by the time I was his daughter walking through downtown Montreal, he was a very well-known, all-level, like his face was known, his voice was known, his stories were known. So my life with him was walking on the stage of Montreal with people stopping him on every corner, asking if they could help with the garbage pickup thing, asking if like, he knew about this. Like his phone number was always listed. He took every mm. call from everybody. He was a man of the people. We would always go to happy hour, five o'clock, spend, get, you know, whatever bar food was there. Or if we begged to go home, we'd go rent a movie and he'd get us like fast food to go delivered food, Chinese food. So it was just like fun the stuff. fun stuff. But it was always in public. You know, it was very few hours spent alone. And the few hours spent alone was us watching movies because he was like the fun gateway to like yeah, Hollywood, Star Wars, Indiana Jones, like all like the big culture stuff. You know, my mother was so cool, so bohemian, anti-TV, anti-Hollywood, mm-hmm. right. anti- she was like the real deal bohemian hippie. He was like a cool kind of stuck in the 1920s jazz lover who just kind of thought entertainment was interesting he had no like hippie counterculture he was not counterculture he was he was stuck in like the turn of the last century Mm -hmm. where he believed in politics and storytelling he didn't jump on the bandwagon of, of revolutionary thinking he was very even though he was a radical yeah it was kind of radical because he wore a suit and he wasn't a hippie Right. And he was not into psychedelics. He was not into like alternative lifestyle stuff. He was like very drinking a beer or a vodka, smoking a cigarette with a suit. Very kind of timeless. Yeah. Oh, such a cool character. Biggest smile. So charming. 
yelling with love and smiles. He was a debater, but a fun yeah. debater. He had every history of the world at the, his tips, you know, the Ottoman Empire, the World War II, every moment of history was within reach. So he could always prove somebody wrong if they were making a flippant <laughs> like, well, you know, the local, you know, now news, you pull from the history of the world and say, what are you talking about? You don't even know what happened in the French Revolution or what. It so he was able to like, he was just bigger than everyone. He had dropped out of college and read every single book and become like a, a man of the word, but had, you know, no formal education, of course, son of very, very poor immigrants. Um, so I guess the personality was what brought him everywhere. Like, that's why his TV show was popular. That's why his radio show was popular. He was like loud, gregarious, handsome, charming, and accessible like just yeah. like at the bar talking to everyone and so i was this shy girl with my shy friend alice we were the two who came into like the 80s music like very like the smiths and the yeah. cure and all sad and all kind of like hiding behind our like baggy clothes and not like out not outgoing we were just sort of wallflowers watching this like larger than life man hold court at any bar happy hour we would go to while we would just be like scribbling on a pad or like listening to our Walkmans. And he he showed us how to be a person of the people and of how to like speak publicly, how to be loved publicly, how to have a voice, have something to say, offer the room something, wow. give the room something, give someone <laughs> to think about, something to think about, something to aspire to, something to feel uncomfortable about. He was hmm. just incredible um, and nobody exactly, definitely a provocateur. He was most known uh, in my um, eulogy. I say all the many things that he is, but one of them was a bum pincher. His whole thing is greeting was pinching every butt, old, young, male, female, doesn't matter. That you would like be at the bar and all of a sudden your bum would be pinched and there he would be like winking at you with his giant walrus, walrus grin and it would just be like, hey, he was just, oh. you know, wanted to get everybody just open up be oh i loved him so Goosing much so the world yes exactly yeah. <laughs> exactly so i mean that's how who he is how he came to be you know he was also like i'm I'm doing my memo right now and i'm having my archivist do an oral yeah. history with all yes. of my friends so on monday she's talking to alice who did i was and i was saying to her just today alice is the one that knows remembers all the next stories ask her because awesome. she was shyer than I was and I was really shy and he whenever I had like oh Nick is going to bring us to Madison Square Gardens to see Michael Jackson and stay at the Hemsley Palace and like sit in the lobby hoping to meet Michael Jackson and Cyndi Lauper and Whitney Houston because he had friends in high places at like Pepsi promote so we yes. got tickets on the side of the stage so Alice was one I brought to all of my big like we got tickets to Cindy Lauper. Nick got his tickets, so he was like the gateway to all this big yes. fun stuff because he was a influential man and he knew yeah. big people who you know brought all the shows. And I wasn't into hockey, but he could bring me to every hockey game, and I could have met hockey players, but that wasn't my thing. So Alice came on all those trips, and the um, I recently was contacted by a, a team that's making a Chelsea Hotel documentary because they knew yes. that I had lived in the Chelsea Hotel at the turn of the last millennial. I lived there for 9-11. I watched 9-11 from the Chelsea Hotel. And they were really psyched to hear that the first time I went to the Chelsea Hotel, my father brought me and my friend Alice, who were, we were obsessed with the Velvet Underground yes. and the Ramones and, and Blondie. And, a night, and so my 16th birthday, which would have been 1985 or 6 or whatever it was, 
brought us to stay at the Chelsea Hotel, which was a pretty seedy wow. space, brought us to CBGB saying, these are my girls. I can bring her. Like, you know, we weren't allowed <laughs> to really like, so he brought us to all the stuff, you know, he didn't even know what any of that was. Yeah. He didn't care about the Chelsea Hotel, but we did. And so Nick made everything happen. All the awesome. fun stuff, you know? Yeah. Did so. he play music? Or oh, like no. He did not believe that any good music had happened in the 1900s wow. other than jazz. He was right. a classical music fanatic. His house was just blaring classical music. You couldn't even talk over it. It was just like this <laughs> giant atrium in the center of a house was just like classical radio up. You can't even talk. Like the morning was just like living in a symphony. And then he wow. would say that actually jazz, they knew what they were doing. There was something... So he liked the intellectual element of jazz. And in the 60s, while my mother was like free love, no man is going to define me. I'm going to be a single radical feminist mother. She, he was a beatnik poet because of the power of the word. So he, I used to have, I gave it away to some dumb ex-boyfriend. I wish I hadn't, but he used to wear this leather vest, like a, you know, like a, like a cardigan yeah. vest, leather um, with great sideburns and his way of getting cigarettes and beer was he was a a um, he was a beatnik poet who had pet rocks and he would walk into a bar and I don't know whether he was claiming that this was like an oracle but he would hold a rock and recite poetry for beer and cigarettes <laughs> so he was like kind of like that's why it makes sense at jazz but I never got to have enough of these conversations because I didn't even understand. By 22, I understood grunge music and I loved the 80s scene, but I hadn't yet really cared about the 60s and jazz. And I was I never got to have these conversations. But now that I review what what I know was his story, I see that he was a weird avant garde weirdo. Yeah. Well, he got you your first guitar, right? Yep. So, and that's uh, all, thank God for this book, that's whoever his colleagues, in the year after my death, they compiled the best of his columns. So thank God that book exists and I'm able to like occasionally pull from it, read it. I recently read it because I was going back to the memorial and I wanted to read a, a piece of his and I reread a bunch of the On Being a Dad articles and the, um, mm -hmm. the one about buying the bass. Actually, it was brought up because one of the other journalists that were writing was writing about the memorial and writing about me for the paper. He had revisited it and he said, I just reread the article about, you know, when your father bought you the bass and it's just so sweet. And Aww. back to your question, Elizabeth, of like, I, you know, everything I did was captured by my father and it never bothered me. I yeah. was like, I knew it was his form of love. That yeah. was the only way he knew how to tell me and the world that he loved me. Aww. You know, he was nice to me, but he, he didn't have good intimate relationships he never remarried or anything like he you know, had like bluesy girls all the time, but he had no, <laughs> no serious candidates for real life partners. Mm -hmm. My mother was the one that got away because mm -hmm. after a few months of marriage, she was back at the bar, lipstick on the collar. There was no way you know, like and my mother quickly realized, you know, why she had picked him for his firm to begin with. You're not a husband. Mm -hmm. You're a cool DNA specimen. And <laughs> lucky for her. Ended up being the coolest role model of just cultural, strange, you know, make an impact on the world, offer the room something. Yeah. Well, he bought you your first guitar, as Aaron mentioned, mm -hmm. and, and you talk about shy, being a shy kid and shyness and Alice's oh. shyness. And then 
being thrust into these environments with, you know, a drinking yeah. journalist dad who's like the mayor of Montreal, yeah. essentially. You know, for me, my sister, who was my Alice, we were quite shy. And my dad, I can just remember just burning with embarrassment. Yeah. You know, going not at necessarily at bars, but like even the thought of him like making small talk. You know, he was a classic. Where are you from? What's your story? Uh-huh. Type, and you know, would do that with the cashier at the grocery store, whoever. Yeah. And it was so embarrassing. But now I find yeah. myself at forty doing naturally it. wanting to talk to people. Totally. Did he bring you out of your shyness? Because how did this shy girl end up? The bass player at school. It was music, music, music. uh, And that's why it's symbolic that he gave me my first bass, even though my mother is like real proprietary about like, my mother was the first rock female disc jockey on the Montreal Airways. My mother was the rock person. Your father didn't even like rock music. Why would you credit him? I was like, he bought me the bass. I don't know what to tell you. He had more money at the time. And she's like, he didn't even like rock music. I'm the one that introduced It's true. I grew up on her record collection. She's the one cool. who explained the rock music was a thing. Like, she's the one to this day that I'll still, like, play the new Interpol record to and ask her what she thinks. Like, nice. she's a real music person. She yeah. watched her generation. She, she, in her heyday, in her archives that are living in the... Canadian archive, she's as significant as he is to the Canadian culture. She ended up going in the theater world. So most of her achievements is all in the theater world. But in her days as a interviewer, and she, I remember this is how cool my mother was and my father wasn't in the picture. She was splicing her radio show on reel to reel on the floor of our living room with headphones like this, making her radio show, talking into a mic and she was the first female rock disc jockey on the airwaves of Montreal. Like, there's no wow. cooler than that. So she was a broadcaster simultaneously to him. Mm-hmm. She, they were, it was not just him. She had a whole other take on what was going on. And she was the one who, you know, made me realize she was so passionate about her generation. She... Mm-hmm. She at this point is all going to be in the memoir, and I've said this to 10,000 people, so it's fine. I can tell you. She was Frank Zappa's, Robbie Robertson, D.B. and Winwood, uh, Peter Cetera's Montreal girlfriends. Like, she he, she had flings with <laughs> wow. every... She was the most beautiful. I look like my father. My mother is a Sophia Loren, babe from another universe, most beautiful woman in Montreal. And when bands came to town, this is who interviewed them. And wow. those men all loved my mother and she had flings with many of them so she was the rock woman and she like would go through her record collection this is the junkie this is the babe that everyone (laughs) loves this is the one i had sex with this is the so she she was like really the thing my father had no impact on me with rock music and she was the one who my father was under pressure from his immigrant swiss catholic family to send me to an old girl school she had full custody she was like I'm not doing anything you and your family think I'm going to do. I'm sending her to an alternative music school and she is going to be an artist and you are wrong. So my mother was defiant on that. My father didn't know how to raise a child. He had no clue. And then he had this like overbearing mother who wanted me in a Catholic girl's school. And he tried once. And my mother said, you have no say in what this girl is going to become and don't, you know, get out of here. So she was the one who sent me to an experimental art school when it started in a room of the YWCA. Now, to this day, is the biggest um, public 
music school in Montreal called FACE, Fine Arts Core Education. And I had the greatest education of my life. I, there's no way I would be who I am and do anything that I've done. I wouldn't have been a whole, I wouldn't have my art center now in upstate New York. My mother and her right. choice for my education and the glorious city of Montreal being so free-spirited and independent and radical in the 70s made a school to make people like me. My father was this other thing. So music was my mother. My father was this weird public life. Yeah. I don't know how to make sense of people who don't know how to have intimate relationships like my father. I will go into the public world and I will have public relationships that are deep love relationships that I don't really understand until I'm now 50 years old writing my memoir. Like, yeah. I, that's what my father was, is strange versions of relationships. Mm -hmm. And back to what you were saying about the awkward small talk, he could talk to anybody. He could, you know, I am now that person. Yes, I grew into that. But I, in the 90s and in my 20s, was the aloof woman of no words. I was the ticket girl, the DJ, the bass player. I just, behind the camera, I was a photographer for rock right. bands while I was the ticket girl and the DJ. I just didn't talk. I was no words, just so shy, so painfully intimidated by my two parents who were radically eloquent in their perspectives and in their mm -hmm. words. I would never have been able to compete with that. So the bass and finding the music world and the music scene and being anti-word and speaking, my mm -hmm. visual musical career was entirely spawned from being a reaction to these brilliant people who could fight to the death of what they believed. They're, they were so eloquent in their right. worldviews. So this all came later after my music career when I became a mother and moved to a small town in America because I knew I didn't want to live in New York City. I'd fall in love with a New Yorker. I had spent all of my weird um, big days in rock between LA and New York. Couldn't stand either of them. I'm a Montreal small city grassroots type. I was trying to move back to Montreal. Then I fell in love with this guy. You can't really bring Americans into Canada. <laughs> so we made a compromise and moved upstate New York where he went to college. It was a great liberal arts school here called Bard College. Mm -hmm. And I fell in love with this tiny town that looked like Montreal and it looked like the West Village to him. So it looked like the places we grew up, but it was in the middle of nowhere. And it was two hours from New York and four hours from Montreal. And we made a home here. And then next thing I know, I become the Nick of Hudson, New York. Yeah, All of a sudden, I am like, literally, everyone's asked me to run for mayor. I'm like, no, no, no. I'm just going to be at the town meetings. I'm going to do this. Then I, I like woke up realizing my father has possessed me and I'm turning my little <laughs> neighborhood into the neighborhood I want to be. Yeah. You know, I wouldn't be the change you want to be. Make the art center, Make have your friend buy the local bar, have your other friend get the restaurant going and you build the neighborhood and you mm -hmm. build the, the world you want to live in. And, and in my case, being just missing my home city, every, every day I've left, I just miss. I, I now have a Pied a terre there. Um, mm -hmm. Me and Rufus Wainwright, my other Montreal childhood friends who have just, right. it's, it's really hard to not live in Montreal when you are a Montrealer, but Montreal is small. Growing up in Montreal, you really have a fear that you're never going to leave. My father, for example, Montreal was his life. People tried to get him into provincial and federal politics. He mm -hmm. was such an incredibly brilliant, charismatic politician, but he stuck small. And that was always my mother and a lot of his more powerful friends 
felt that he never really did what he could have done to make a real impact on a federal level, which I remember at the time thinking, what? Like, I don't want him to be like the prime minister of Canada. What are like, everyone's ambitions were, you know, smart people. My mother felt like he didn't do what he could have done for the world. He Mm -hmm. felt like his voice was so, so spot on that he could have made bigger change. He ended up, with all due respect to him and his short life of 54 years, he was trapped in a small city and he only, he went as far as that city could bring him. Mm-hmm. And he did as much as you could do in a small city. And also important for you to note that Montreal is a bilingual city and English Montreal is a tiny village within a French city. Interesting. You can only go so far. And he was like the biggest fish in that pond. So there was always a fear for me, I think, that I would get trapped in tiny Montreal and I would never be able to like eclipse my father's power there. Yeah. So my ticket to leave, which I originally said no, but it was my father who said And he has an article about this, too, which is call the big pumpkin back and tell him you've reconsidered. You call that guy because he had heard that this some big guy had come through with Lollapalooza, this big festival down there and asked my daughter to join join the guy who committed suicide's wife's band. And she said, no, can't you see the world? Wait a second. Could you make some money? He all of a sudden was like the one asking me to reconsider. And it was the beginning of me reconsidering is how many people, my father, my actual boyfriend band member at the time told me to reconsider. I was like, wait a second, we have a band. You're my boy. Why are all these people telling me I should reconsider? And that's when it dawned on me, oh, this is like a life-changing opportunity crossroads. I was so in love and in my own creative space, I truly was like, finishing my photography degree. I was applying to yeah. go to RISD or San Francisco Art Institute. I just was going to be an artist following. And then this weird Courtney opportunity came out of left field. And that's when I realized, oh, this is the crowd. This is like your life will change forever moment. Uh-huh. And I still wasn't even convinced until I walked off the airplane and came down the escalator in Seattle and saw Courtney, Francis, Patty, and the nanny. And that's when I realized... Oh, oh, <laughs> this is my destiny. This is not about like, do I want to be in a major label band? Do I want to make money? Do- this is just right. these women need me. And I, okay, got it. That's just, yeah. Incredible. When did your dad even realize that you were a musician? Did you, was there like this- the day he bought me my bass? Like he, I, I wow. like he didn't know I had like, so I would, oh God, I was working at bars and going to rock clubs from so young. I mean, we were talking 13, 14. I have no idea that what my parents knew I was or they certainly weren't clamping down on me. So (laughs) I guess they knew I was somewhere. But I also started late in that I didn't actually pick up my bass. I had a a leg up because I went to music school. So my ear Mm -hmm. was trained. I understood music. I played trumpet, sang in choirs. I understood music. I was obsessed with music. I played music like 24 seven in my head and half of what it is to learn how to play music is to listen. That's all you have to do. Half of it is listening. The other half is learning. Um, So if you know music, you can play music. Like if you love music, you can play music. So I had this cool, easy DJ gig, my cassette DJ career, which went from 17 years old till the day I left to join Hole 22. So it was my like five year. I held an anchor three days a week as a cassette DJ with the only girl DJ at the bar was like, it was sort of like the CBGB's, well, it wasn't a venue. It was a place where all 
the bands would go after the gig. And mm. so I, it was a pretty legendary, legendary spot in the 90s in Montreal. And I was the only girl that was DJ there. And I just started, I found these mentors, these guys in the local rock bands who were the other DJs. And they just started inviting me. They saw how obsessed I was with music. They kind of took me under their wing. They taught me about everything from amps to the labels to Fugazi, like understand the landscape mm. of what the revolution that was about to come. This is like before Nevermind came, you know, came out. This is like yeah. really, this is when shit was boiling up and all of a sudden, you know, our music movement to the 90s was about to explode. So I had this like great year or two intensive course with these older guys who never made a pass at me, who completely just saw that I was a music lover, wanted to like show me the ropes. Nice. And then invited me to their jam space, which was in the alleyway behind the bar. Hey, do you want to come down? Do you, have you ever? I was like, I think I want to play bass because I saw Darcy and mm-hmm. Hole, 1991. The Smashing Pumpkins and Hole played two weeks apart. Neither of them had their, their albums out. They only wow. had seven inches out. And there was something about Darcy and Jill Emery at these two shows that I understood, oh, I'm a bass player. I didn't even like, I don't know how I knew, but I was already 19. It's not like I started at 15 years old. So at 19, one of these guys lent me one of his basses and I just started playing in my room. And I said, oh, I've been playing. I've been trying to learn helmet parts. Like I really love playing. And then they um, invited me down. And I remember the day that I plugged into my first giant amp uh, that my first band that ended up being named after the guy who sold me that giant amp, Tinker, Tinker Thomas, who was like a guy who fixed old amps and old guitars and old pedals. And I remember the first time plugging into this giant Ampeg SVT that it was like built in distortion and playing through a fridge, they call them fridges. And like, wow, the power of that sonic Bruh. boom through my body yes. for a shy girl who was like lucky enough that I could press play on the tape, talk to the older guys. The moment <laughs> I played a loud bass note, I found my voice. That's all mm-hmm. I needed. And so shortly thereafter, these guys said, hey, you should just join our side band because these were guys in big touring bands and they were kind of had fun side bands. And I ended up being the bass player for one of these guys who was like in, I actually have always said that the Foo Fighters ripped this band off, but it's true. A Montreal band called the Doughboys, who sound exactly like the Foo Fighters. Foo Fighters. That the Foo Fighters other guy, the guy when he was in Scream, when Dave was in Scream, toured, was a fan of the Doughboys. And that mm-hmm. so they were like that early pop rock stuff of the nineties, yeah. which was like a, a, a movement. I mean it was like underground, but it was cool. Um that was the biggest band in Canada of that genre. And one of the, the lead guitar player had a side band and asked me to be the bass player. So my first band and recording demos overnight at some crappy college um, basement studio was with these guys. And then they told me they knew who my father was because everybody knew who my father was They're like, you should have your father buy you a bass. You should get a good bass. Wow. I was like, really? Oh, what was a good bass? And we went to the pawn shop that was around the corner from my father's bar. They identified the bass that I still have. When I got sponsored by Fender, they replicated my vintage Fender bass that I got that day. Yeah. And they're like, this is the bass you need to learn. And then I marched around the corner, found my father at the bar and said, I have a bass I want to buy. And he thought it seemed so cool and weird that his daughter wanted. And he came around the corner and bought me the bass because those guys told me I should do it. (laughs) Oh, my God. And you still have it? Oh, yes. It's a beautiful bass. Yeah. I played it throughout that Lollapalooza in 1994. You did? That was your the bass my father gave me. 
And I literally joined Whole less than a year and a half later. It was just like all happened. It was so fast. I had only played seven shows in Montreal when I joined Whole. I was not a musician. <laughs> what was your first like big cover song that you learned how to play? Well, what's so cool is we weren't doing covers. We made originals. I was in just a band originals. of originals. We just made wow. up stuff because they were real musicians. They weren't cover band people. They weren't teenagers. I was playing with real professional touring musicians who had been to Europe, who had been on tour with Scream. I was just catching up, learning how to make songs. By the time I was learning whole songs to be in the band, I had right. almost never learned anybody else's song before. I only, for fun, learned two of my favorite Pumpkin songs and two okay. of my favorite Helmet songs. I never knew anybody else's songs. Wow. And you had like two weeks to learn the whole yeah. songs by the time you went yeah. on these massive tours. Yes. Can't believe it. Actually. Well, also, I have goosebumps hearing you yeah. say, you know, that you went and saw Smashing Pumpkins. You went and saw mm -hmm. the Pumpkins. You went and saw Hole. You were so impressed by Darcy, you know, and then you ended up playing bass in both of those bands. I know. <laughs> you that, no, those two, that, that two weeks. Yeah. I, mm -hmm. In my memoir, I have like a very clear sort of sketch of like the year everything in 1991 right before Nevermind came out there yeah. was like a, a explosion of like a zeitgeist moment it just so happens that that July because Smells Like Teen Spirit came out like in like August September that July the Pumpkin they were all on tour in different places so in that one month I saw all three bands and you could feel it in the live shows, yeah. even though there was 20 people watching Hole, 20 people or less watching The Pumpkins. The Pumpkins were yeah. playing for $1 on a I shitty was, Tuesday. I was the ticket girl. I was like, oh, we should just go watch this band. And you felt the magic happening. Like, whoa, yeah. this is not normal. And then Nevermind came out and it was like, okay, the package has arrived. My generation has spoken. We're about to go on a giant cruise together around the world. And that's when I yeah. knew, like, I'm... Like my mother had told me about her generation, oh, this is my ride. I am involved. I am going to be part of this. I'm going to catch that wave however I can. And it wasn't that I wanted to be a rock star at all because these guys weren't rock stars. Right. Courtney Hole was supposed to stay on my, um, my couch that night because I thought the roadie was cute. And that's what we did. We let all these bands stay at our house because there was like nowhere. They didn't have money. They had no, didn't even have right. food. They were just going to mm -hmm. stay on my couch. But then my roommate at the time, an aspiring acting student, had seen her in Straight to Hell. And she uh, pulled me over and she said, right. Courtney Love is not staying in my house. She's a psychopath. I was like, but I just invited them. She's like, go uninvite them. It's not an option. And she's like, they're also into drugs. You're not going to like, don't bring them to her house. So I had to go uninvite them to my house. And the first words ever shared between Courtney and I, I was walking to the bathroom and the wild, blonde, fearless person who I had just seen play pulled me and said, are you the babe that was talking to our roadie? <laughs> I said, yes. She said, fuck them. We're all so sexually frustrated. That was my first exchange with <laughs> Courtney. <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. Did your dad give you any advice? He was a man of just like gregarious words. He lived as an example of mm -hmm. fearless, get out there, do something. That was it. He never told me anything. My mother was the one who was right. tripping out. I mean, she totally supported it. Of course, she was the feminist. She was the one who understood what Courtney was representing and doing. And she was like all for it as far as women in rock. I don't yeah. think that like made an I don't think my father put that together other than, wow, these cool women are doing totally crazy things. Like he didn't see it in a feminist trajectory. 
she is a feminist. She knew what was going on. This, these women were going to change what was on the male stage. She was not scared per se, but she was, of course, literally the primary caretaker who was a bit concerned about letting me into a, basically a valley of death. Yeah. I mean, I, my first show, Courtney, Kristen had only died less than eight weeks earlier. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, I was literally stepping into a very newly deceased person's role. It's mm -hmm. very tough. Um, and my mother always tells this story, which is that all of her friends who started reading the Piper, like, wait, your daughter joined like right. a, a heroin? Like, <laughs> what is going on? Aren't you scared? And my mother always said, oh, no, Melissa hates needles. She's never been into drugs mm -hmm. and alcohol. She's going to be fine. And I had her father, who was my favorite normal real, male role model, my grandfather, George D. Johnson from Boston, a draperer who served in World War II, Republican, straight as one could be, the most solid, the anchor that I didn't have because of my father was not an emotional anchor. Right. He came to see his play Lollapalooza, 1995. I mean, Courtney literally is like screaming about every possible wrong thing and my grandfather and i remember she was even saying i hear the melissa's grandfather's in the audience and i'm not supposed to say fuck fuck <laughs> fuck 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 and uh, my grandfather right. was sitting in the audience next to my mother who he was you know his daughter had been like a wild feminist who had a child alone who did all the things her way he was always very proud of her and uh, his words about seeing me in whole was my girl brings some class into that band and her head is screwed on right. She's going to help those people get, you know, get better. So I had, a, wow. I had lots of champions who knew that I was, you know, I wasn't going to fail any of them because all of them just believed in me. No one told me I should be a doctor or a lawyer. No one told me I should be a musician. They just believed in me. They just let me do what I wanted to do. No one ever told yeah. me what to do. That's like the goal, I think, for parents and family. When you talk about your dad not being an emotional anchor and, you know, you mentioned that he died young and there was heavy drinking and uh, had you, I don't know if that was connected to the the, the early death, the drinking, but it was for my, my dad died at 67 and yeah. it was certainly the cause, but was yeah. there, was there any, you know, I hear a lot of acceptance for your dad. I've been thinking a lot about acceptance as it relates to addiction lately. But I hear a lot of, you know, space for your dad's kind of wild ways and what you're sharing with us. Was there ever tension around his proclivities, so to speak? Or had you? I had, I knew that I was a daughter of an alcoholic. And yeah. I knew I was a person who didn't a daughter of a person who didn't know how to have normal, emotional, intimate relationships, who was mm -hmm. not comfortable with proximity of emotions and that we lived on a, on a very different level than I did with other people. So that's, you know, what, what forms, you know, codependent, you know, weird, bad habits is I was very into emotionally unavailable men in my 20s, like very obvious patterns. But I was always, I've always said that I was very lucky that I knew my father, I was a daughter of an alcoholic. Like, that's how I, I was always self-aware. It wasn't like, oh my God, was that bad? Right, no, right. Of course it was bad. I mean, he was emotionally, uh, he was self-medicating all the time. Like, right. He died of smoking. He, mm. he hit, but it's called a smoking drinking cancer. It's mouth and throat. And mm -hmm. it is alcohol consumed with chain smoking. Mm -hmm. Yes. Opens this thing. And so 
everybody knew, you know, it was the smoking, but it was the smoking and the drinking combination. And yeah. the both of the two things symbolized his self-destructive, uh, like his somewhere in there, there was a deep self-loathing and lack of faith that his body and life, some of it was cultural and generational, not understanding. But in his case, it was a self-medicating way of him fighting deep, strange emotions, you know, and, and his family was very, the Oftermowers, like he was the normal person in the family. They were yeah. overbearing and very Catholic and very damaged by poverty. And he just, he was, it's a miracle he came out as together as he was. Yeah. So I always just loved him for that. I'm like, good for you. That's just how I always feel about Courtney. Like, amazing. You did great considering. And I'm not surprised you had a drinking problem <laughs> because you yeah. didn't know how else to cope because there weren't any tools. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, our early, early memories, I, and then it never really came up again as when I was about 12 or something, I uh, took his cigarettes out of his pocket and because I had probably learned that day that smoking kills you. And I threw it into a sewer, uh, like a, a manhole in um, downtown Montreal, walking home from school. And he said, well, Melissa. And it was, he had never gotten mad at me. And he looked at me with such anger and said, why did you do that? And I said, because smoking can kill you. And he said, never do that. And he was like, it was so scary how yeah. not accepting. Like, it wasn't like, oh, that's cute. Oh, I understand why you might think that. Just don't worry about me. I'm going to be. It was just an extreme denial that there was anything wrong with me and that's when I realized oh I'm scared of this person I'm scared of this side of him and there's not going to be any stopping this and I have said again and again that when I went to his memorial 25 years later to the old bar that has his hat framed above his favorite bar stool where he wrote all of his articles and where he ran his campaigns political campaigns from I would be very upset and depressed right now if my father was still alive and living that life. You know, that would not have aged well. Mm -hmm. And he died at 54 and he died at his prime. And that's yeah. it. Like he's just, he is one of those people that I don't know what would have happened. And it would have been pretty heartbreaking for me to watch. You know, I would have at some point had to, whether it's intervention or cut him out or just disconnect. We were lucky that I only knew him when I was that young. And then. It was perfect that I went slipped into a band of all drug addicts, far worse than him, made him look like a healthy, happy drunk. <laughs> and he was a healthy, happy drunk. He was never abusive. He was never angry. He was never mean. He was never, yeah. he never like crashed a car. He just completely happy alcoholic, if yeah. that's possible. It just meant that he was hungover alone in the morning and didn't have a very good personal life. He had yeah. a incredible social life, but he didn't have an intimate life that was very good. I'm curious about, you know, you mentioned like being the daughter, like knowing you were and so no surprises, but like yeah. seeing the sort of early partnership choices and same struggles for me too. I'm curious about, you know, your relationship with him created this understanding for people like Courtney or for big personalities or people who who had substances in the background, yeah. so to speak. Um, if you don't mind sharing with us, what kind of a partner is your husband like a therapist right. once told me you don't marry your husband or your father you father. marry your mom and so I'm curious about the person that you ended up choosing and also what yeah. your daughter knows about your dad oh yeah well thank goodness my daughter was you know 11 and came to the uh the memorial last weekend and she's always I mean it was like 
pictures of my father everywhere, stories about my father everywhere. She really like, you know, loves him and knows how she can tell how much he means to me and how happy he makes me. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not marry my father. Whole, yeah. Definitely, definitely not. Other than some emotional, you know, there is a tradition in men being emotionally less intelligent, let's say that, you know, not <laughs> knowing how to communicate about emotions. Sure. Right. There's, a bit of, there's a bit of that, you know. Um, he had cool, wild, crazy parents like my father. Mm-hmm. He didn't have great tools with his origin. Like, my mother has been in therapy since she was a single, like, pregnant as a single mother at 30. You know, she has right. been yeah. talking the talk and trying to figure out how to navigate her life choices and phases. You know, she's like a very wise therapist that I can always call to talk out. Like, I've never had that in a man mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. I haven't married that. So I haven't married my wise, like, in therapy <laughs> mother. But I have right. certainly married a very, very reliable, wonderful, stable, providing. Mm-hmm. My mother did an amazing job. She provided a home as a single mother, as a freelance journalist, and cocktail waitress, like she did whatever she needed to do to make a home for me. Yeah. And my the reason I decided at 39, this man was worthy of having a child when I was never sure that I would have a child. I was never yeah. someone who like, I didn't come from a cool, normal family that thought, I can't wait to get married and have kids. Right. That was never, ever. In fact, it was the opposite. Like, I'm never going to get married. Maybe I'll have a kid, but not necessarily. Like, it was very complicated. Um, and by the time I met a guy like Tony and I realized like he really wants to have a family with me and wants to like have a home with me. And like, don't you know, I've moved like every year for like 15 yeah. years. I've never washed a dish. I am not like domesticated. Are you sure? And he really was a good man who pursued me and was seemingly not afraid of the person who with touring metal festivals at six months pregnant. <laughs> the last show I played was six months pregnant with River at a heavy metal festival in Toronto on the bill with Rob Zombie, Mastodon, Judas Priest. It was ridiculous. And, and that was like, I was the only girl on the bill saying to like the total metal audience, pointing to my baby bump, saying, there's two women on this stage. We're doing yeah. it for the women out there. <laughs> and like, that was my last show before retiring to become a mother. So it's not like my husband thought I was like some cool housewife. <laughs> so he was daring and that he decided to have a life with me. But mainly he was trustworthy mm-hmm. and unbelievably devoted to, you know, like a devoted person. You know, I never would have were in our 17th year, which is shocking. Wow. Is that true? Hold on. No, that can't be correct. Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It's crazy. 17 years. <laughs> that's fantastic. You've explored heavy metal music a lot in your career. And Aaron and I were wondering about the Danzig song. My oh, father. Yeah. Father's this is a, grave. This is Tell a good about... one to end on. This is a yes. great question. Okay. Yes. This is like. This gonna, there, there should be a whole chapter of this in my memoir, but I don't think I'm going to be able to justify giving that much time to Danzig nor my father's death. <laughs> but, oh my goodness, it is so, first of all, for those who you know know me from Hole, I was always way more into heavy music. Hole was not heavy enough for me. Right. Like Courtney always said, Melissa's song on Celebrity Skin. So when we play it live, she's like, this is Melissa's song. It's called Use Once and Destroy. Yeah. And it's like the, the heavier... So that 
I could never get my rocks off enough in whole. And yeah. then when I joined the Pumpkins, I was like, finally, here I am, like just riffing in arenas. And like, you know, that was way more my visceral style. And, and, and then my solo records had heavier riffs. But um, the second solo record I made, you know, right before I became a mother and uh, I wrote my dream duet. So when I was 15, like when those mentor guys found me and asked me to be a DJ and started intro introducing me to all this music when I was 15, 16, 17, I heard one of the Danzig solo albums and I may have even been on Mushrooms, I don't know, but I remember like falling in love with this like Elvis of metal, like, wait a second, who is this <laughs> mythological like it's not like I was sexually attracted to him, but I loved this character. That's why I love heavy music is you're in a mythology. You're not mm. in a, you know, I'm not a Bob Dylan fan. I'm not a Joni Mitchell fan. It was mm. even hard for me. Some of the 90s music was a little too real. Like, I like yeah. fantasy. I'm fancy, 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 fantasy. And I remember all my cool guys were like, no, you got to like the misfits. You can't like dance. Yeah. His solo records, no, that's kind of cheesy. I'm like... <laughs> This is incredible. He's telling this stories about like women with black wings. So I was like in love <laughs> right away with Glenn Danzig. And then I was making my second solo record. I was like, wow, dream duets based on a true story. The man who dug my father's grave was a goth metal grave digger that I knew in college who oh. wore human fingers on his leather chokers. Because he had trained to be a grave digger from like 16 years old on. We had like a brief romance in college. He was the sexiest, darkest, coolest freak I've ever met. When you oh. say fingers on the, what human, is that? From grave digging. Like real, bones? Yes, human bones that he got from the graveyard, from his grave digging graves. Probably illegal, but we don't have to name no. it. And no. And I loved this guy, I was like 17. He was the darkest thing I had yeah. ever encountered. We like made out a few times. I was, I think he was a heroin addict. Like I was scared of him and his crew, but I was right. like, this guy is magical. Wow. Somewhere around then, I probably found Danzig. Somewhere around then, I created this fantasy character in my head. Fast forward to my father dies within a few months because it was still April. The ground was frozen. Something, something. My father's grave is dug and I somehow get contacted or I run into him to the grave digger whoa who I haven't seen since our dark gothic fantasy fling in college right and he says I dug your father's grave and I made sure that it was you know I, I patted it I like it was like I can't believe it and then he said do you want me to bring you there and I met him at the graveyard because I didn't know how to find his grave yeah. And we walked to the grave together in the rain. I'm sorry. That's so romantic. I can't even. It's beyond romantic. It's and so then romantic. I, like oh. some crazy fantasy, live in a fantasy, decided I was going to cast Glenn Danzig as my grave digger. And I wrote the story in the song and found Glenn Danzig's address and sent a cassette of me singing his part in, in my part. A demo with Derek Lynn Danzig. I have been in love with you since I was 17. This is a true story. I met the Grave Digger. Would you do a duet with me? And you one didn't day. You didn't know him before? No, I've never met him. I don't know anything. This is how I get everywhere. I write fan letters. Same. No joke. This is 2008. <laughs> my phone, my shitty cell phone in 2008 is ringing, and the number is 213 666 
something. Well, I, I answer the phone, like, hello, Melissa, this is Glenn. I'm like, Glenn Dantic, you got my packet? I like your song. I'll do your duet. I am the luckiest human being in fantasy rock, okay? Fantasy rock is my specialty. Wow. And I wrote a song devoted and dedicated to the man who dug my father's grave. And I was able to cast Glenn Danzig as the grave digger. And my dreams have been, I have manifested I'm... many fantasies. And I'm very happy you asked me that question. Um, right uh... now, because I am really bad with music business, that album is not available on iTunes. But in one week, it will be. I just re-uploaded it because it was out on my own label. Long story. You can only find it on YouTube. If you put Melissa and Danzig, you can hear it. But it's going to be up online and I'm going to launch my website reminding people that, holy crap, my old album that I... I'm very proud of that record. That yes. was my last album, Out of Our Minds. And no one, except for Johnny Cash's son, has ever done a duet with Glenn Danzig but me. And if you ask me, that makes me one of the coolest women in rock. <laughs> Listen, sweet little girl, your father's gone below. I know I'm trying hard, trying to let go. Just let me lead you to the ground where lies his heart. With all these tears inside, I'll surely fall apart. Tell Me About Your Father and Daddy Issues are created and produced by Aaron Hosier, Elizabeth Thompson, and Matthew Philp. You can always listen for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Google, and anywhere you get your shows. Follow us at Tell Me About Your Father on Instagram and Facebook. Subscribe to our bi-weekly newsletter that accompanies new episodes at tellmeaboutyourfather.com. And Apple Podcasts is like the New York Times book review of platforms. So if you can, go there to rate and review us. We'd love to hear what you think. Let your father
your father's feet Please, little girl, be brave Lips in the rain